Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 129 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a photographer who has taken his passion for landscape photography and built a commercial photography business out of it. Dan Hawk is a Portland, Oregon photographer and former full-time bank employee who decided to use his knowledge he gained in the business world to create a niche commercial photography business for himself. Dan and I explored several interesting topics this week, including his journey as a photographer, comparing and contrasting commercial photography work and landscape photography work, how to value our work as photographers, Dan's investment and partnership in the camera strap company Luma Labs, and lots more. Over on Patreon this week, Dan and I explore the challenges and dichotomy between the need for creative pursuits and business pursuits as photographers and how to balance those two things. Well, one quick announcement before we get going. I am really excited to announce that I have officially joined as an instructor at the esteemed Landscape Photography Conference out of Chicago. I'll be joining them for three conferences this year, out of Moab, out of Acadia, and out of Yosemite. Out of Yosemite will be February 5th through the 9th, 2020, and I'll be teaching, recording podcasts, and hosting panel discussions with some of our favorite photographers and past guests, including Alex Noriega, Colleen Minnick, Charlotte Gibb, Jack Curran, Michael Fry, and many more. I hope to see you there. If you're interested in attending, follow the link in the liner notes and use the code FSTOP250 for $250 off your registration. Okay, let's get to the show. Well, cool. Dan Hawk, it's awesome to get you on to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. First, I got to thank you for all of your support of the podcast, not only as a avid listener and also as a patron. You bet. Yeah, it's it's been a a fun a fun uh, a fun thing to support. I really appreciate what you've been doing, and um, there's so many great conversations, and even people that I've kind of gotten to know uh, through the podcast and then connected with afterward. So that's been cool, fantastic. Man. I'm glad that uh, you're getting getting something back for your money. <laughs> <laughs> nice, cool. Well, you know, I feel like one of my, one of my personal favorite parts of the podcast is just getting to know people. So um, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you're all about, what you got going on, and uh, maybe tell us like how did you even get into this world of photography? Sure. So um, I live in Portland, Oregon. And I'm pretty much a lifelong Oregonian. I grew, I was born in California, but I don't really count that. Uh, so, I, but I've lived here my whole life. Um, I've lived in Portland for, I don't know, nearly the last 18 year, years or so. And uh, I have a wife and three kids and two dogs. In fact, one of them is a puppy that we just picked up on Friday. So nice. You, yeah. So it's a little crazy around here and you hear barking yapping clawing that's the puppy upstairs uh getting out his last bit of energy before going to bed awesome yeah so it's 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 a lot of fun but it's a lot of middle of the night poop breaks and stuff like that so oh, yeah <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's kind of crazy um in terms of what i do i uh i've been a photographer my whole life but 
I've been a commercial photographer for the last about three and a half years. And landscape photography is kind of a, maybe a side gig, but also um, maybe a better description is just that it's, it's a hobby. It's the, it's the passion, Mm -hmm. something that I do because I really enjoy it. And I don't make a lot of money from landscape photography, um, mainly because I just don't need to. Um, Right. So it's, it's really, it's really an interesting kind of place to be because most people that are in the landscape community in the nature of photography community are when they're talking about going pro or they're talking about making money from it there, it's very different from what I'm doing. Um, right. And so that's a little bit of where I'm at. And then um, I also am really involved with uh, ASMP, which is the American society of media photographers. I'm actually one of the co-presidents of our Oregon chapter, which is a, kind of a trade organization for commercial photographers. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then just, this is always comes up my background. I spent many years in both sales and then in, um, wealth management. So banking, huh. private banking, uh, and investments. So you're a natural at, uh, <laughs> selling yourself, which I feel like most photographers are terrible at. <laughs> You know, I, people always talk about, hey, hey, a bank, that's such a weird change, you know, big change. And it really isn't that different um, when you're working with small business owners and, and folks that are, you know, kind of on the wealthier end of the spectrum. Um, it ends up being a lot of people who are, you know, kind of self-made is really a terrible word for it. But people who have started their own businesses, people who are entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And my first few clients as a commercial photographer were actually um, previous bank clients, people that I had, I had worked with in, in a completely different realm. And okay. so, yeah. but it, but it means that there's a few things that I've, that I have some advantages. Uh, when you're a banker, you see the only people who've seen more tax returns than, than bankers are CPAs. So <laughs> I'm real familiar with marketing budgets and what a small business owner is, how they're thinking about investments um, and business investments specifically. So how does that translate into how you operate your business as a commercial photographer? I think the the biggest thing is is that most photographers and, and not everybody, but I find this quite often. Photographers think that selling photography is about showing beautiful images to people. That if you if you just show a you know potential client, oh look, I can take amazing photos of your of you or your product or your location that that's going to be enough and that that's going to um, you know seal the deal that's going that's what's going to be the closer <clears throat> and that really just is not the case in almost every situation I find myself um, faced with the idea of value what does this bring what solution you know what what problem are you solving with these photos uh-huh. you know and it's and sometimes it's not about even just photos it's they don't really need photography. What they really need is to tell stories. What they really right. need is to show what it's like to really work there because they want people to understand what it's like to work at a place. It's their life, it's lifestyle photos of their office or in the case of, uh, you know, working with products, it's, it's having the product presented in a way that, that makes, makes it desirable and helps mm-hmm. people to understand, Oh, what would it feel like if I were using this? And mm-hmm. so that's, that's more than just pretty pictures. It, it's, it's far more about how do I solve your problem? Well, I can tell you from my personal experience that um, 
just showing people ugly pictures also doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, Although, you know, that's, (laughs) this is kind of maybe a little bit interesting, but the whole light, you know, everybody knows somebody who is a mediocre photographer at best, but is working with the biggest brands. Um, That's true. And, and vice versa. I have, I know amazing photographers, people who are, you know, heroes from a, from a technical or even an artistic perspective, but, but then they don't, they can't connect. Yeah. They, right. they expect that the imagery is enough that it tells the story that it's going to be the thing that wins the client over. And it, it just isn't, you, you need right. to be, you need to be a real partner. And I think that's maybe the biggest thing is that you can't view yourself as just a, the person who makes photos. You have to view yourself as how I'm a marketing partner for my clients. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> What is like when you first meet with uh, potential clients, like what, like, what is your approach to trying to, I guess, not sell them on that, but I mean, you are a salesman, but like, what is your approach to, you know, getting them on board with you being the person that needs to tell their story through imagery and video? You know, it kind of depends on how I met them and um, probably you'll say 80% of my clients are people that were referred to me. That's sweet. Yeah. And that's kind of normal for the industry. It's uh, the whole idea of cold calling people that doesn't really work. And the the main reason why is because the person you would think that you should call is probably not the person that would make a decision or even be interested. Mm -hmm. Um, So oftentimes what will happen is, you know, somebody will say, Hey, I, I, my, my buddy had a, you know, had new photos on their website and I asked him who took them and it was you. And I'd love to know if you can help me. I, you know, I need some new photos of this particular product or, you know, something like that. Uh, so oftentimes I don't have to sell them on the need for to- for photography. Uh, but what I am going to do is, uh, is talk through what does it look like? What does that process look like? to to engage me as a photographer uh, mm-hmm. for what they're doing because i think a lot of times people and maybe this is a this is a good place for another distinction there is retail photography retail photography is where the client and the purpose are not a business um and good examples wedding babies families oh, right. those are those are all retail photography and it's because the photos aren't being used to sell something they're they're used you they hire you so that they can have the pleasure of owning those photos or right. them, you know or buying prints of them and and when you're in a commercial situation the idea is that these photos will be used to promote someone's business so that is that's the conversation that always that's how things get started it's talking through how can i best serve what they you know what you need and so my questions it almost almost to a T almost every single potential business client that I meet. My question is almost always right from the beginning. Where are you trying to go? How are you trying to grow your business? What's the, what's the step here? What are your, what are your dreams, your five-year plan? You know, what are you looking to get out of, uh, out of this? Because sometimes people just say, Hey, you know, I, I, um, I just need to find more clients. Or, or they say, I, we just need to make our stuff look better because 
we haven't updated our photos in five years. Right. Um, but sometimes it's not that answer at all. Sometimes the answer is, you know, we need to, um, we need to make things more profitable. Right. Which or, is or, or, like a very open-ended uh, answer, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Th- and I think that's oftentimes I'm asking kind of open-ended questions on purpose mm-hmm. because the, what I'm hoping to gather is not just how much money do you want to spend? Um, what exactly do you want the pictures to look like, but more, what do you need these pictures to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wh- which is, I, you know, I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting process because it's really more of a marketing question mm-hmm. than an artistic question. Yeah. I'm super curious um, as somebody who kind of started out doing landscape photography first as kind of a hobby and a passion, how did that, uh, how did your, you know, skills and approach to landscape photography help you or hinder you in your work as a commercial photographer? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit okay. and tell you a little, you asked about my background, but when I was growing up, I spent a little bit of time doing that, the darkroom film thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm a 44, so I uh, you know, graduated in ni- 1993 from high school. So I'm, I'm removed enough from that era that I grew up on film. Uh, and I had a great time, you know, just taking pictures, but it was mostly snapshots. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, when I had my first son, uh, we picked up a, just a really cheap, I think it was a Kodak digital camera. Right. It was, it was like a, I can't remember what the power, not power shot. That's, <laughs> that's a Canon, but it was some kind of easy you know, share. It was an easy share. That's right. It had a little dock. It had a dock. It yeah. was cool. And yeah. you just plugged in and it did its thing. And I I kind of started there and like, oh, that was kind of interesting. And, and the pictures weren't very good. It was like three megapixels. And then I picked up a Canon, one of those little elf titanium cameras. And I started taking more pictures with that. And I'm like, oh, that's that's better. And then I got my hands on an iPhone 4. And I that was kind of a game changer for me. <laughs> that's and funny. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew I had, you know, Hey, I'd grown up taking tons of photos, but it was always, there was always that remove that removal of from the time you take it to the time you have your hands on it again. So I really enjoyed it. I was, and I, at the time I was bike commuting about 14 miles a day Mm -hmm. and in Portland, I don't know. I know it's not like this everywhere, but it's dark and gray most of the winter. And what what happens is when you have a nine to five job, and you're bike commuting, it means you're riding in the dark both ways in the middle of winter. If you just choose to bike commute, which when I lived there, <laughs> this I, is true. I only bike commuted like April through September. Exactly. <laughs> See, the park, the parking was too, I worked in the U.S. Bank Corps building downtown uh-huh. and, and the parking was, I don't know, $280 a month. Oh, yeah. And, and so I literally sold my car bought a new bike and all the gear I needed. And I still came out ahead. Um, But here's the, here's the thing is it's dark on both ends of the day. But what happens is during the spring and the fall, you are witness to these gorgeous sunrises and sunsets. Yeah. And you're in the middle, you're in golden hour or blue hour all the time. And you're outside in it. I started taking pictures with that iPhone four and I started, you know, kind of sharing them here and there. And People were like, hey, this is kind of cool. And then I thought, well, I, I used to take photos with a real camera. And 
a friend of mine said, hey, there's all these different kinds of cool cameras out now. You should maybe get one and you can carry it in your bike bag when you're commuting. And so I went out and did a bunch of shopping and did a lot of comparison and I landed on a Sony Nex 5N. Right. With the kit with the kit lens. And that became my little bike commute landscape uh camera. And it just kind of went from there. I was like, well, this is cool. I like hiking too. So I headed out to the gorge with it and took some photos and that that went really well. And I was really enjoying what I was doing. And then I started buying some, some a few different lenses. And then I think somewhere in the middle of that, I started, I had a buddy who was a um, wedding photographer and he was doing a, a 365 project. Mm-hmm. So one photo every day. And I was thinking, well, I, I could probably do that. So I started one and that's kind of where everything took off. Uh, that year, my skills just shot through the roof. Um, my, uh, just my eye really, really developed and, I just spent a lot of time doing landscape photography and also a lot of still life type things, mm-hmm. um, shooting in the dark, playing with lo- shadows and right. highlights and really getting a feel for, um, for color and tonality. Um, and so th- that was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And I just kept kind of progressing and, you know, kind of bought some new gear through all that whole process. And then about, yeah, it's about 2016. So I had been shooting for, you know, about four or five years at that point, mm-hmm. um, with a real camera. And then I, they changed some stuff at work and said, Hey, we're going <laughs> to like, this is funny. I'm putting this out on the internet, but basically my boss said, Hey, we're going to bump all of your goals up by 30%. <laughs> and we're going to make your portfolio smaller. We're going to get rid of all the medium folks in your portfolio. It's only going to be high end. And we expect you to find more, more revenue and more, more products. And I literally came home and we had had a, we'd had a pretty good year. And I came home to my wife and said, um, this sucks. Can I quit? <laughs> <laughs> and she, she thankfully has a really great job with great insurance. And so she said, you know, okay, but what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm not totally sure, but I got some ideas. And uh, what I, what I did is I sat down at, with one of my best friends and, and said, Hey, okay, how can I make this work? And we basically pieced together that it would make a lot of sense for me to build a business based on this working with the same kind of clients I've been working mm-hmm. with. So that's basically what I did. And right off the bat, I picked up a few weird, you know, kind of oddball jobs that my experience worked with. So I was actually a product manager or not product manager, but a, a product manager um, for or project manager. Sorry. There we go. Project manager for a friend's um, software company. And I was actually the manager for all the web development for Neutrogena for about nine months, Okay, which is really weird because I'm not a software developer, but he asked me if I could be a project manager. And I said, well, I was a relationship manager at the bank, so I can probably pull that off. And he said, literally, we just need you to talk people off the ledge. <laughs> so, he paid me really well. I worked for him for nine months. Um, that first year out, I managed to make about the same amount of money I had the previous year. Um, self-employed, doing consulting work. I picked up my first couple of headshot gigs, um, doing doing headshots for a big company. And I literally went and bought a, a, a setup of lights. Right. Um, 
uh, David Hobby Strobest has yeah, a website, <laughs> and I went and I bought the kit off of his website um, from from Midwest Photo, like the umbrella a, and everything. Yep, yep, the umbrella, the flash. <laughs> um, I bought some uh, Pocket Wizard triggers. Yeah, dude, I did the <laughs> same I, exact thing. Yeah, and I called up a bunch of buddies and I said, "Everybody, you guys got to come over here. I got to practice. I got to learn how to do this." Right. And so I had probably 15, 20 people that all came over, kind of within a two week span. And I basically was was had the, the strobist page open, and I had all this gear set up. And I was just experimenting <laughs> to figure out yeah, how I do I do this. And uh, it, it's kind of wild that it wasn't that long ago. But yeah. um, I put together a portfolio. I pitched my first couple companies, um, and I got the gig, both of them. So that's kind of how it started. And then some. There's one big thing that changed the direction of where I was going and, and the work, the kind of work that I pursue. I had a friend that owns a donut shop in town and okay. I had kind of gotten, I'd gotten to know him because I shot some photos like every other photographer does in Portland at his shop. And he commented, Hey, these are great photos. And I reached out and said, Hey, I'd love to come do a behind the scenes photo shoot at the shop. And the, the shop is called Pips Donuts. Okay. And Pips is kind of famous in Portland. They make these little mini donuts that are like the size of donuts, but they make them to order and they're amazing. So Nate Snell, the owner there, gave me a shot. I came in, I spent a couple mornings with his crew, and that became the portfolio that I used to then go find a bunch of other really great clients in Portland. And it's been just kind of uphill from there. And I've worked with some really amazing clients that are really a lot of fun you meet really really interesting people doing that kind of work yeah and uh, yeah it's so that that's kind of how i develop that skill set it's it's just learning the stuff you need to learn and i i always tell people that photoshop you learn most of your photoshop chops by fixing your own mistakes totally (laughs) that's i i learned most of my lighting and photoshop and compositional uh chops by fixing the stuff that I had done wrong on set or, yeah. uh, in, in with clients. And thankfully I've gotten better. So kind of going back to my question, maybe I'll rephrase it a little differently now that I heard, heard yeah, that. I went off for a long time. No, there. you're good. <laughs> um, like all of that experience doing, you know, landscapes and 365 and oh yeah, yeah. like how did, how did, how has that helped you or hindered you when you're doing commercial work? So I think that there's one of the things that I hope comes across in my work is a, uh, I think a lot of times when you see commercial photography, it looks really, really slick and polished. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, every little, every little hair, every little piece in the background is, is immaculate. And I think being a landscape photographer I have spent lots of time chasing light, and I, which I think all of us do. Sure. Like that's <laughs> that's this is the reason why we get frustrated when people fake light because this is the thing we live for. This is when I go out, I don't even want to go on a day when the light's not right. So, to approach studio work, to approach lifestyle and work in an office. To, to think about photographing a building or real, you know, real estate or a commercial property, I'm all about light. 
and and I have a little tagline on my website that basically says, "Hey, I'm all about chasing beautiful light, but I'll make it if I if we if we have to." Right. And so that's the way I approach it, and I think that hopefully comes across in my work that I'm as somebody who's a nature photographer as well. I'm I'm always hoping to capture real light and real moments, and and I think that's what makes the difference. Uh, I have clients that tell me that they say, "Hey, you know, this is really cool because it looks it looks like how it really felt to be there." Right, like it, and so, it's authentic. Yeah, yeah. It's I have, there's a friend of mine that's a commercial photographer, and they call it crafted reality. Mm-hmm. Is what they, mm-hmm. I wish I could just steal it, but it's it's part of their <laughs> it's part of how they market themselves. But the idea that you go, "Hey, this is reality," but maybe we tweak things just a little bit. Um, so I think that landscape side of things it just makes me a little more aware what's going on in the natural with natural light mm-hmm. what's what's happening in the situation how do we how do we use space um the space that we actually have instead of just creating um instead of just creating a little tableau or a, you know a scene mm-hmm. well and obviously uh landscape photography and commercial photography are very different in terms of um like how you approach it what your experience is like. I'm curious, have you found yourself enjoying one over the other or, or liking one when you're in certain moods over the other or kind of what? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, like how, what is your relationship with those two styles? You know, I, I think, I mean, they're, they're like night and day. So a a good example is this last week. I'll I'll just kind of, you know, use what's present. Uh, last week I had two different shoots that were there very much during the middle of the day. Uh, one of them was I did 48 headshots in four hours <laughs> for uh, uh, you know, for a group of a mental health group, uh-huh. and and it was great and it's a really nice paycheck and I got to meet a lot of really nice people and then I got to go home at you know 12:30. I started it. I was there at eight. I went home at 12:30 ish, and I was done working for the day and. I got to do what I needed to do, but it was a very limited time frame. It wasn't dependent on weather or anything. Right. There's a certain level of it's that's kind of putting your head down work, if that makes sense. Right. And um, like, <laughs> like everything's in your control kind of. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Everything's in your, everything's in your control. It is, it's kind of, people talk about being in a flow state <laughs> and Somebody asked me, man, tell me how you, that's five, that's a headshot every five minutes. How do you pull that off? And I'm like, man, half the time, I'm not sure. Um, you just go, you just go, go, go. And that seems doable to me. I don't know. Well, it, it seems doable until you have one person who just refuses to smile. And every <laughs> <All> t- <right. laughs> every single blink, every time the flash goes off. Yeah. Well, that, and that, that's not the worst. The worst is you go, Hey, you <laughs> give me a smile and i don't know if you've ever seen that movie Notting hill but um he, there's this guy in there and he just is the cheesiest <laughs> guy and he comes out he comes out in front of pop Tarazzi in his underwear makes this crazy cheesy grin showing his awful awful british teeth <laughs> 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 that's terrible but um i feel i feel like that's kind of what happens is people <laughs> you go hey can you smile Hey, give me a little bigger smile. And they just make this right. awkward, weird smile. Like, right. And, and you're there with them for 15 minutes and right. you go, man, I got, I got 12 people online here. Right. <laughs> so, 
So kind of getting back to it, that was my job on Tuesday. On Thursday, I was shooting for a travel a travel bureau, um, a local um, travel agency, not travel agency, but um, a group that promotes travel. And it was literally hanging out in their offices for four hours, taking pictures of them working. Um, and then when I'm done, I, I go home. <laughs> so there's very much, it's a very different thing to go. I'm going to work. And then landscape photography for me is far more of an escape. Um, this is, you know, I've got a local, a couple local friends here that I've been blessed with being able to hang out and shoot with a ton. And I just go, Hey, you know, let's go, let's go. We're going to go hit sunrise. We're going to the, the place we've both been 30, 40 times, but we just go to experience it. Is it Pittock Mansion? Here's not. I'm actually not a. I'm not a fan of Pittock Mansion. Um, I'm sure there's somebody listening who is. So I, I, I love. I love out, Pittock Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I, probably because when I've been up there, it's been garbage. Right. It's never been good. No, it's. Uh, but it's, it's funny. Like, it's just one of the, like when I lived in Portland, it was like one of the only places I went back to like over and over again because I was never yeah. quite happy with what I got. <laughs> sure, you didn't. You didn't get the fog. I exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so the couple of places that I go back to all the time um, is uh, John's Red Point, right. which is out in, in Sandy. And it's kind of funny because you and I actually very briefly kind of made, made eye contact there a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we ever talked. Yeah. I'm I got glad. there when everybody else was leaving. <laughs> That's so funny. That was one of those where I was there and I shot Blue Hour, but everybody else left right when I got there. Uh, but, it, you know, that's... For me, it's it's getting up. It's it's the experience. It's the we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to wait. We're here to see what happens. That's a very different experience, right? For me, um, whereas when I go put together something for a commercial job, there's a um, I always it's the, it's the, I'm a professional. <laughs> I'll rise above it. I'll create whatever needs to you know. We'll make it happen. Right. It's a totally different mindset. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I did, um, I actually photographed a bunch of people doing a high ropes course over the weekend. Nice. And, you know, like that's a totally different yeah. type of photography than, you know, going out, hiking somewhere, looking for interesting things to take photos of. Um and I wouldn't say that it wasn't enjoyable. It was just a completely different approach to photography. Right, right. I, I think it's it's a little bit, I mean, I don't even know. It's like the difference between drawing and painting, sort of. Or it's like painting, like I have um Or it's like, a, was, that's, no, that was perfect. Because it's almost like a, an architect versus like when he just goes home and like, paints or doodles exactly you know like well, yeah or here's a good one for you somebody who who paints you know for fun or for art but then there's these guys in portland jns signs and they hand letter paint do hand lettered painting on like windows oh right 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 and it's crazy detailed i mean it's it's gorgeous really gorgeous work but then I got a chance to go to their shop at one point about a year ago. And the stuff that they have going in the shop is just would blow your mind <laughs> because it's so beautiful, but it's, it's not for clients. It's for them. Uh-huh. And I think it's kind of like that. It's like painting and drawing. That's not really right. It's the idea of people who do like 
really high end hand lettering, right? Versus versus <laughs> paint painting with watercolors. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, they're kind of the same medium. You're right. kind of using the same tools, but the end purpose is really different, and the accuracy and and in some ways also what what it's going to be used for. You know, kind of the the longevity of it um, is different. Mm-hmm. So for me. Landscape photography, it's about going out and experiencing nature. Yeah. And and then if it doesn't show up that day, that's okay. Right. I, if it doesn't show up when I go shoot a job, it's not okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the thing you have to fix and manage. Exactly. That's so you, you take that you want to get rid of all those variables. <laughs> you, you know, it's interesting the, though, because I think there are a lot of landscape photographers, and again, I could be wrong, but just based on what I see people doing and comments people make, but I think there are some landscape photographers that show up to nature with that same kind of attitude, you know, like, like I have to get this shot. And if I don't get this shot, like it's going to completely ruin my day. I think it's just, it's interesting how different people go into nature to get photos for different reasons and how that changes their approach and maybe even changes the output. Um, I don't know. It's just very interesting to think about. I totally agree with that. And it's, it's funny cause I, I wish I remember who said it, but somebody, it was probably in the Facebook group, but you know, the, the podcast Facebook group had said that that's kind of a game changer is realizing that it's, it's okay to go out there and come back with nothing yeah. because the point of going out there is not to come back with something. The point is to go out and experience something. Well, so for, I mean- so for me, that's, that's, if I have the experience that I'm, I'm good. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to go out and like not be happy. Uh, I'm just, you know, you might, you might last a little longer as a landscape photographer if you don't have those expectations. Yeah, I agree. Or your happiness as a photographer might be quite a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I think it also opens up the idea of what is it like to go visit places a lot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is it like to have, to have a local place become someplace that you have a long-term relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny because I mentioned John's red point, which is, you know, it's one of those ones where, you know, every picture from there, like it, the composition is pretty much the same. Like right. You can, you can zoom in a little bit. You can, can shoot with a wide angle lens but i have friends that every time i post a photo or talk about it they're like man that place sucks i always get skunked there <laughs> and, I, and i'm just like you know wow i mean because <laughs> i totally get that there are places i've never gotten a good shot i and think then, i think i actually mentioned that place not by name a couple episodes ago when i was talking about um how i used to approach uh nature photography and how like I showed up and the weather was just crap and you couldn't even see Mount Hood. And I <laughs> don't even think I took a single picture and I drove home and was pissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> I've, I've been there. Um, but more and more, I think that's, you know, I think the idea of the intimate landscape or the, has become, you know, that's, that's become a lot more of a popular idea. And I think I started doing a little more of that because I wasn't seeing the grand mm-hmm. scene, you know, because I wasn't, it's not always there. <laughs> yeah. If, when, if the light's not going to go off, if the, if you're, if you're, if it's not a burner, <laughs> you gotta, you're gonna do something different. Mm-hmm. And, 
and uh, sometimes we're lucky, you know, sometimes it shows up and you cool, put on a wide angle lens and go for it. Right. But a lot of times, you know, like one of the most dud sunsets I've ever been to was, it was complete bluebird sky. The Alpenglow didn't go off for some reason, but I got this, one of my favorite black and white images of Mount Hood from, from one of those high vantage points out there. Yeah. And, and it's just because I was like, you know, I'm going to shoot this differently. Yeah. You just got to so, have an open mind. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I suppose that, um, as somebody who spends more time in the commercial land, uh, commercial work world that you're kind of focused on and thinking about, um, the value of photography a little bit differently. I feel like, um, a lot of us landscape photographers, a lot of people are worried about like watermarks and like who shows your photos, (laughs) just kind of crazy stuff. But I'm sure you're kind of more worried about like, are people using the work the way that we agreed to in contract? Um, like are people actually adequately paying me for the value that I'm providing to their business? Um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about kind of your thought process on kind of how we should think about how we value our work as photographers. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's definitely something I think about. And what I'll tell you is there are kind of, there's kind of two schools of thought on the, in the commercial world. And I don't mean to speak for all commercial photographers and I'm, I'm even kind of new at it. So I'll say that, but you know, I'm pretty involved with ASMP. um, And we do a lot of work, even in Washington, DC with legislation, trying to work on copyright and, and make it something that's, that actually favors photographers that, that we actually have a way to, you know, uh, pursue when things go wrong, we can actually uh, kind of pursue uh, monetary compensation. The way that I approach it is maybe a little, I guess I mentioned there were two approaches and I think one of them is to worry about what people are doing with your image without your permission. So that's, that's one. And then the other side is to think about how do I communicate and sell the the rights to an image or the usage to an image in a way that where I get fairly compensated. Mm-hmm. And I, I think those are kind of two different approaches. I tend to not worry about my stuff being used mm-hmm. um, without my permission mm-hmm. because I think that that's, to me, it seems like kind of a losing proposition. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I, I feel like, I don't know, like, Say what you want about Trey Ratcliffe, but years ago, he said something that has always stuck with me when it came to that per- that particular issue. And paraphrasing, he was basically like, you know, those people were never the people that were going to pay you anyways. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's so like, don't spend your time worrying about those issues. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. It's funny that you mentioned him because I looked him up for the first time in probably a year today. <laughs> That's so funny. Earlier today. Oh, and it was, I think it was because of that peak tripod. I just saw a link to him reviewing it. Okay. And it was funny because it was very typically Trey Ratcliffe review of an item. Right. It was amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. It's, the most it's just amazing as good as my really right ever. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's just as good as my really right stuff tripod. Like, cool <laughs> yeah 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 no he's uh he's 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 a character for sure um <laughs> yeah so 
that idea, that approach to things, I think it's where I want to spend my energy. I would rather spend my energy talking to clients and figuring out how I can get them something they're really going to love mm-hmm. and ha- and then give them a fair price that I'm going to feel good about charging. And and I feel like so how do you like how do you do that? Like cuz I don't me personally that is honestly one of the most difficult things and I think a lot of photographers struggle with this is like how do we not only for commercial work but also like you know yeah. licensing licensing landscape images for different mm-hmm. uses. I feel like everyone struggles with, you know, how do I, what's a fair price to ask for? Cause he, you know, the, the classic in my mind anyway, it's like, if I give them too low of a number, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just lost out on a shitload right. of money. <laughs> this guy's not worth <laughs> and it. And if I give them too high of a number, they're going to run away and find somebody right. else. So it's like really hard to, gauge that so like what's what's your approach to figuring that out well my, here's what i'll say is that there there's the really simple answer is that it's not a simple answer <laughs> thanks dan <laughs> <laughs> there are so many people that are making a living from this that have no clue and are about what they're doing and are completely nervous every single time they put up they do a bid mm-hmm and it's because it's from the it's those exact things that you said. It's that if you bid too low, then you look like a schmo, right? And they go, "Well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing." Right. And if you bid too high, then they're going to go, "Well, I don't have that much money. I'll just go with the cheaper guy." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and realistically, the thing to keep in mind is those are two different clients. Yeah. They're, you don't, and maybe you don't know who they are. You don't know what their approach is going to be. Mm-hmm. But what I have found is that there's a degree to which when you educate clients about what it's worth and about what they're actually asking for, mm-hmm. it, it changes the conversation. So I have, um, I have a client that I did a bid for recently where they said, Hey, we want to shoot this many images over this many months and our maximum budget is, you know, this number. And between you and I, like, uh, their maximum budget is probably half what it should be. Sure. And so the approach I took was to say, Hey, this is great that you have such a great list, a great shot list of stuff you want. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for giving me an idea what your budget is. Mm -hmm. And with that budget, here's what I can provide. Mm -hmm. This is what it will, this is what it gets you. Mm -hmm. And I itemized out, this is how much it's going to cost for the models. Here's what it's going to cost for the permits. Mm -hmm. Here's what it's going to cost for food to feed the crew, the assistant, the stylist that's on set, because it, they're asking for a lot of lifestyle images all over an entire county. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, project. this is it will be it will be really fun. I would love to get the job, but at the at the price that they're giving, I can't just leave it open ended. And so I feel like there's a couple things that I've done. One is if I do get the job we have set expectations for what it's actually going to entail. Mm-hmm. And and with this job, there's going to be some landscape stuff. There's going to be some still life. There's going to be some people drinking beers. There's going to be people mountain biking. It's a lot of cool stuff. But if for some reason I don't get the job, then what I have done is I've set up expectations that this is a complicated job and maybe what it does is it sets the bar a little higher for them 
going forward. Mm -hmm. Maybe it changes the way they approach it. Maybe it, uh, it educates that client. So in the future, they value photography more highly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of how I try to, it's a win-win. Maybe I don't win the job, but hopefully I'm educating a client and hopefully I come off looking like more of a professional. And I know there's people who would go, well, great, but you didn't get the job. So good job, man. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, let's say you don't get it and they give it to someone who is bid half as much, but then like when they go to deliver the product and they don't see that they have models and they don't see that they have X, Y, and Z that you talked about, they're going to be like, Oh, I guess you get what you pay for. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're going to realize real quickly that like there is a trade-off to, you know, lowballing. Well, and there's something important in all of this as well. And I think this applies, we've talked a lot about, you know, the commercial side of things, Mm -hmm. but I, but I think this applies for anybody who is, making money selling either fo- photographic art mm-hmm. or photographic services. Mm-hmm. And it's that we are all part of a, an industry um, and maybe multiple industries, but we're all part of a photography community and a photography industry. Mm-hmm. And when you do things right, when you do things that value your work and your time, it raises, you know, this is a rising tide and it rises, it raises all the ships. Mm-hmm. It makes it better for all of us. No, I agree. Um, there's there's nothing worse than somebody out there. I mean, the classic example for me and and the and the friends that are in the commercial world is it's that guy out there shooting headshots for a hundred dollars, right? Like I don't I don't want to compete with that, but I also don't you know I'm it bums me out that there's a client who's going to pay that and then have to receive that work, right? Be, because what you did is that guy can't the guy who charges a hundred dollars for headshot for one person, that is not, that doesn't sustain his business. That's not a business model. that makes any sense. And so that's funny. What Cause I think, I feel like I would do single headshots for a dollar, hundred dollars a pop. <laughs> well, and you can do that, but you have a regular job too. Well, that's true. But I mean, like I literally paid off my entire, like back in 2013, I bought like, you know, like $10,000 worth of gear. Yeah. And I, paid it all off over like a two month period doing senior portraits and headshots. And I wasn't charging crazy money and I wasn't like working myself crazy either. I just, you know, made enough money to pay off my gear sure. and I was pretty happy about that. And I think that's, I think that's cool. And I, and there are people that are able to to do this in that way. But I think that as somebody who's, who's trying to make a full-time living at this, that doesn't, you know, when I, when I look at that and I think about how much taxes I have to pay no, I get and, it, man. My, and my insurance <laughs> and like every, when I go to a commercial gig, I got to have $2 million in liability insurance right, right. and I have to insure all of my gear with a business, uh, you know, with a, with a business insurance policy and accounting fees and Dropbox fees. And, you know, I mean, you can add this stuff up and what it ends up happening is, that hundred dollars. Well, now it's when you when you figure out all your expenses, you only get to keep like fifty to sixty dollars of that. No, I I, I totally get that. <laughs> I think it's interesting yeah. though because I think when you think about how to price commercial work, um, I feel like the less complexity there is, the lower standards there are for like the entry. So yeah, you know, like yeah. uh, 
Well, headshots headshots are not that different from shooting senior portraits. No, I exactly like, you know? and I mean, that's it. I'm just saying, like, I easily could pull off a, a senior portrait session in an hour, charge hundred and fifty dollars, but I would, you know, the same like this that doesn't translate as well if I'm trying to do a huge commercial shoot with models and makeup and like different scenes. Like, it's a totally different um animal you know there's some it's just it doesn't scale up as easily so i feel like um what i mean by all that is you know the cost of entry in terms of gear and talent and things of and skill and things of that nature you know it's 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 a lot easier for someone to do a pretty decent headshot oh yeah um with you just need a fifty one eight and a decent camera, and you're good. <laughs> right, or an eighty five one eight or an eighty five one four, eighty five one eight, or a seventy two yeah. hundred or whatever. But, um, yeah. yeah, like it's interesting though because you know I've heard so many people say that like, why are you giving your away? Not, not to me, but like you've heard of. I mean, you've heard people that'll they'll do them for free for people. Like, oh, you're a friend. I'll uh-huh. just do your headshot for free. It's cool. I think it's hard to compete with, you know photography has gotten become so accessible and with the internet it's so easy to learn skills and techniques and things like that i think it's hard to compete as a legit business owner um with certain types of shoots with someone who's just off the street and is pretty decent with a camera yeah yeah i I think that and that's not to say that everybody who's charging a hundred dollars is just total shit it's not to say that they're, yeah, it's not to say that they're, hey, come on, man. It's not to say that they're assholes. It's just to say that is hard when you, when you're trying to make a living doing this yep. and, and you actually have, you know, if you think about it, you don't have another job. You can't do that. If you, if you added up how many headshots you have to do at a hundred dollars a pop. Oh yeah. It's, it's not sustainable it's crazy. for a, for a full-time photographer. Oh, totally. So that, I think that's kind of where it comes from. And, oh yeah! But no, every once in a while, I'll be competing with somebody on a job that should be five thousand dollars, and they'll be bidding, you know, eight hundred dollars. <laughs> right. And you just go, "Come on, man! You're gonna be, you're gonna be shooting for you know two days, and you're gonna need an assistant, and you're gonna there's so many things that they just don't think about. Right. And then it's like it's it's kind of like getting real estate photography taken by a, a drone pilot that's not licensed. <laughs> like, come on. Not licensed, no insurance. That's great until it's not great. Right. Until and, they crash the drone into the fire into the power lines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for me for me, I think that's that is part of my proposition as well. It's like, hey, when you hire me, you're hiring somebody who is doing it right. Yeah. Who has all the right licensing and has all of the has the training and has the backup in place. So all of your stuff is backed up and you know, everything has been edited in a way that is going to make you look great. Right. Um, and granted, you know, you can learn that off YouTube, but um, I do it all the time. So hopefully my work is, I think it stands for itself. You know, it, it speaks for itself. And I think that's, that's the thing you have to work to as a place where you can say, Hey, instead of a hundred dollars, $350. Right. Well, and I think something you said very early on in the conversation, which I think it, um, applies very heavily to this particular topic you know, basically, you know, when you're selling your commercial work to people, you're tell, you're trying to sell sell them on an idea, or on like how you're going to help their business, um, like how how what you're going to deliver to them is going to advance their needs and give them something that they they're missing. And I feel like 
that is a much healthier approach to this particular debate and conversation than what I've seen oftentimes online where people are just complaining that people are charging zero to small dollars. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, instead of complaining about it, like just prove to other proved prove to your clients and your customers that what you're going to create for them is better. Right. You know, it, well, and it ultimately that's, it's this, the, this conversation is full of little cliche remarks. <laughs> yes, it is. But, but it's the idea that, you know, you, you're going to get what you pay for uh-huh. and that, um, maybe even more than that, it, it, let me think about how to say this. <laughs> we'll edit that out too. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. We we each, we each only get one one removal though. So, <laughs> so no, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and if you leave it in, it won't make it won't make me look too dumb. I think that um, it is a healthier way to look at things. It's a healthier way to approach it. Um, Primarily because that's not your client anyway. Right. The client the client who's going to get all fussy about the little thing that is insulting to you as a professional, that's not your client. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the client who's going to be, um, who, who's looking for the lowest price, mm-hmm. the bargain price, that is not my client. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't offer specials for headshots on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's because the person who only calls me when they see that I'm doing a special, that it's really cheap. Like I don't, that's not the client I want. I want the client who is says, I got to have an amazing headshot to show off because I'm getting ready to look for a new job. Right. Or, or because I just got promoted and my, and now I'm on the, now I get to be part of the executive team on the company website. Right. Like that's the person I want, the person who's looking for high quality. Um, and I, and I, this is kind of funny, but it, this is even it even applies to landscape photography, like selling prints. Oh, absolutely! I was about to just say that. Like every single time I do a sale, I get nothing from that. And I know that's not that's not how everybody see how it works for everybody. But the kind of person who enters a contest, um, the kind of person who buys a, a really cheap print, is probably not the same person who's going to buy a four hundred, five hundred dollar print or a thousand dollar print. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, they engage because it's cheap. Right. They're not, it's not that the, that it being cheap all of a sudden makes them your high end customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was, yeah. I was thinking it applies to our print sales, but it also applies to like licensing. You know, I had, um, just, uh, about a month ago, I had a, a group approach me because they were, they were looking for some Colorado landscape photography for this retail space. Um, and they wanted me to kind of, you know, propose like how I would fill that space with my my photography. And I kind of struggled with how I priced out my proposal to them. But I basically, you know, I charged them basically what I would charge anyone to purchase those prints from me in a, in a retail environment. Right. And they came back and they said, well, what if we what if we printed it ourselves on vinyl like we have a really good printer that does that right and i thought about how to price that and i was like well tell you what i will basically (laughs) what i thought about my internally was i'm just going to basically charge you what my profit would have been if i was printing it so you know if it's a three thousand dollar print and my printing cost is 
1700 I'm going to charge you $1,300. And they went for it, man. It was pretty sweet. So Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it's, it's, I've had the same. I've tried. I've never won one, but I've tried a couple of those where they're like, hey, I got a buddy who prints on metal. Can you, you know, can you license me the image and I'll print it myself? And like, sure, here's the price. And I think I did it. My pricing is a little different, uh-huh. but I, it was kind of, it ended up being about half of what I would have normally sure, charged. Sure. And he wanted, he wanted to print it some enormous size. So it was going to still be like $1,500. Right. And he ended up passing. And I, but I, you know, but I, and, and this is kind of funny, but sometimes when you make a bid or sometimes when you pr- quote somebody a price, the fact that you don't, that you say it the right way, that you put it out there with integrity, like that's enough. Mm-hmm. There's times where I get turned down, but I'm like, as long as, as long as I put out the real value and actually asked for what it's worth, mm-hmm. like that, there's some winning in that. Like there's some success in that for me. Yeah. No, I, I totally, totally I, agree. I know that's, that's getting, you know, that's getting very Zen or, <laughs> You know, there's something spiritual about that. It probably sounds uh, a little uh, woo-woo to people, but <laughs> <laughs> for me, I just feel like half the time, if I can just be true to myself when I when I bid or when I when I put out my work to people, it, it somehow comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they say no, they introduce me to somebody else who is a good mm-hmm. client and does fit. Yeah, I've had that happen so many times That's awesome. that I just. I just don't doubt it anymore. I just go, hey, they go, how much do you charge? And this was a big one for me. A couple of years ago, I decided to really work out my cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. And I came back with a couple of clients and they said, how much does it cost for this? And I said, well, my day rate is $1,800. <laughs> and they were like, cool, we need you for a day and a half. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this worked. It, yeah, it just worked. And I so ever since then, I based all of my pricing on my, on my uh, day rate. It's you know, Hey, that sounds like that's a half of my day. So this is what it costs. And right. No, I think that makes total sense. Yeah. And sometimes it's more, you know, sometimes the client tells me, Hey, there's all this stuff we need. And so then it, right. it becomes and a lot to charge more. Yeah. But to me, I feel like if I, if I'm always, if I always have um, integrity with how I present things and I don't get greedy with it. And instead I try to have some, have like a, a standard by which I approach things. It, mm-hmm. it works better. And that's part of the reason why I went through and did all new pricing and stuff for my prints recently. Mm-hmm. I got yeah, tired. I did the same. Yeah, I got tired of manipulating and thinking about the numbers and how much can I get from this and how much should I charge. So I just cod- you know codified the whole thing. <laughs> it's like, here's how it works. This size costs this much because I know that's what the printer co- charges and I'm going to charge this much of a upcharge on top of that for my profit. And now I don't have yeah, to it's, anymore. It's funny. I was talking to a photographer the other day and I was looking at their website and the price that they charged for like a 40 by 60 acrylic was the same price, um, the same amount of money that it just cost me to produce the same size image right. or it might've even been less. And I was like, how do you, how do you do that? And he was like, Oh, it's fine art America. And I think, you know, they just print on shit material and, you know, it's all just garbage out the door. I mean, I'm sure some of it looks okay, but um, like I, I personally wouldn't want to stand behind that particular 
product. So it's like, what are you comfortable, you know, represent in representing your stuff? Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I think there's just just some piece of, you know, being on top of all that stuff, and and yeah. and just thinking about ahead of time, what are you going to do? What are you right. going to do? Because there's nothing worse than having somebody approach you and you go, Oh, this would be so cool. And it's so great. And how much will I, will I do it for less money or no, set up your prices ahead of time. And, and right. then, then, it is, then they don't offer you a, you know, a backpack and go, Hey, here, we'll give you a backpack and go take pictures, a bunch of pictures of, of our stuff. Right. Well, I, I don't do that. That's, that's not how I do business. Um, so I think that, that hopefully that, uh, that maybe addresses that for you. You set up your pricing, you figure out what your value is up front, and then it's a lot easier mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. opportunities come your way. Yep. Well, kind of switching gears a little bit, staying staying in the kind of business vein of things. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, this camera strap company yeah. that uh, that you helped start. Well, I so I'll I'll clarify. I didn't help start it. Um, okay. <laughs> so I, um, so Luma Labs is a company that's been around for about seven years, seven, eight years. And it was actually started by um, two friends of mine. Um, one of them is a guy named uh, Duncan Davidson. Okay. And Duncan is a, most software developers uh, kind of know who he is. He's a pretty, uh, pretty well-known developer that developed a framework called Tomcat. It's JavaScript. And I don't know anything more about it than that, except for I also know that Duncan was the main photographer for the TED conferences for a few years. Oh, cool. Duncan lived here in Portland and he happened to live in the same building as another guy named Greg Koenig. And Greg is a mechanical engineer and has worked for years and years working on uh, metal fabrication um, and doing everything from knives to tactical uh, weapon parts to um, making knife parts for Leatherman. So he's, he works with, um, uh, CNC machines, uh, robo drills and those kinds of machines, which is the same machines that are used to make iPhones. Hmm. And so he actually has one here in Portland and I ordered one of their straps. The, the company's called Luma labs. I ordered one of their straps five years ago, something like that. And then Greg reached out and said, Hey man, did you know that I we're here in town? I was like, well, yeah. He said, I don't need to ship this to you. We'll save the five bucks and let's just have meat and have coffee. So I met him, loved the product. It was a lot of fun using it. And then I got in touch with him because I said, Hey, I've got, you know, I've got a, uh, I've got an idea for something. And so he said, Hey, that sounds really cool. And he literally made me a prototype and handed it to me and goes, here, try this out. So it's not quite like 3D printing. He actually takes pieces of metal, writes up the uh, writes up the plan in you know in software, and then actually cuts a piece out of aluminum. Mm-hmm. And and so I became you know kind of a de facto local beta tester for for the company. And then a few a couple of years ago, Duncan had moved to uh, Berlin um, to work for a, a small company. That was called Five Wonderkinder, maybe a Six Wonderkinder. Anyway, um, German company that made a company uh, made a app called Wonderlist, and he went over there to work for them, and then they got bought by Microsoft, and then he became <laughs> a, then he became a VP at Microsoft, and he basically said, "Hey, I, I can't I can't do any of the marketing or the product photos anymore." 
<laughs> so <laughs> I just like, and Greg said, Hey man, do you mind taking some product photos? <laughs> so um, I got on the phone with Duncan and worked out how he had taken the last set so we could match them. And I started doing product photography and then I started doing some of the design work. Um, not, not the actual um, computer design part, but coming up with, Hey, this does work. This doesn't work. The strap rubs weird when you do this. Right. Hatches here. It, the whole thing is off balance. It's just kind of giving him some ideas. And then we, he just was said, I need, I need a, another partner. You want in. And so I became a small percentage owner um, and my responsibilities are marketing and beta testing and then all of our social media and, and um, connection with all of our different folks that are doing testing. Sweet. So, yeah. so if you, if, if I take a couple of photos for you, you'll send me some gear. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, probably not. <laughs> it's Sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Uh, so <laughs> It's kind of interesting. We have we've had kind of a little crew of uh, friends of the company that have been sort of our beta testers for a while, yeah. which has been a lot of fun. And it's you know our support email inbox. It's not a week that goes by that we don't get somebody email going, "Hey, I'm an influencer, and I'm oh, and I'm in Amsterdam, or I'm in you know South Africa, or and if you send me this, I'll talk about it on my social media." Oh, my so God. it happens all the time, and we're a little tiny company. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, it happens quite a bit, and I get them. I get Facebook messages, I get Instagram DMs, I get emails in our support inbox, um, and sometimes they kind of they try to be kind of sneaky, you know, like uh, they try to make it that they they try to make it look like they're a lot bigger deal than they really are. Oh yeah, but the reality just for anybody just who kind of thinks about this, I just don't understand that, why people. Like, ah, it just feels, ugh, I don't know. That would just, could you imagine like your entire existence is trying to figure out how to sell other people's stuff like all the time, nonstop, oh, even if you don't think it's good. Right, right. Well, I, mean, I, I don't just... mind promoting stuff that I think is really good and high quality and like I have good relationships and stuff like that. But if it's like just random, like, hey, I, this is what I do. I promote stuff send me one and I'll do it on my social media. If you oh, give yeah. me free stuff, it's a little wild. And so we get those all the time, but the reality is the people that we do trust are people who we know work the gear really hard. People that we know right. are good people. And you know, th this is may sound kind of dumb, but I've got a guy who is, um, a, he does metal fabrication, builds motorcycles <laughs> and, and also shoots for, O Magazine, Oprah's Magazine. Oh, cool. He's a commercial photographer, but he's also just this amazing motorcycle uh, fabricator. And then we've got another, uh, a woman who is, I think, like five feet tall. She's really short, and which is great for us for testing uh, women who are not five foot ten or six foot tall. And she is the main uh, photographer at the National Zoo in Nashville. Hmm. And it's great because she's, you know, Right. doing something completely different. And she also does a lot of concert photography. And so those are, those are two of our, you know, kind of ambassador tester folks, but they meet really specific needs. And then we didn't bring either one of them on because they have a huge following. Right. We brought, we brought them on because 
they express interest in the product. We know that they are real photographers that are actually working and actually getting their hands dirty. You know, this is, it's a place where the strap's going to get beat up right. and it's a place, it's a place where they need it to be a functional tool. Yeah. And and not everybody we work with are professional photographers either. That's, you know, we've got, we've got some guys who are, <laughs> who just like to just go beat the crap out of stuff and we know they'll work hard with it and they're not precious about their gear. So, so I guess I'm having a hard time uh, envisioning what this product is. Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell us what it actually sure, does? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so Luma Labs, uh, we make a few different, a few different versions of a sling strap that is, um, has a single point of contact on the camera. It mounts to the tripod plate okay. uh, or the, the tripod uh, socket. So kind of like Black Rapid? It's, it's similar to Black Rapid, yes. Okay. Um, um, but the main difference is the parts, all of the aluminum parts, so the connectors that mount to the camera are all machined on our machine in Portland by Greg. Um, and he has one. We have a couple of a couple guys that are good friends that we hire occasionally to do some of the some of the actual uh, machining. Mm-hmm. They're anodized here in Portland. All of our um, the leather pad leather shoulder pads are sourced from American tanneries, and then they are sewed together with American created neoprene in a place here in Portland that does all this stuff. The the webbing that we use for them for all the straps also comes from a U.S. manufacturer, and uh, even the little uh, the rubber it's called bump on the rubber stuff that goes on the bottom of the mount mm-hmm. where it connects to your camera is made by 3M and it's made in the United States. So very much a made in the United States company. Every the whole thing is built modularly, so you can take it apart and replace any part that ever breaks or fails or wears out. Mm-hmm. And has a lifetime warranty. You don't really get that from a lot of camera straps. No, I would suspect not. Yeah, and I mean, little things like the leather is actually is Horween, which is a pretty you know kind of a kind of a buzzword in the leather industry, but really really high end stuff. Cool. Uh, but I think the the main thing that the main reason why people like what we make is that when you look at it, it looks as high quality as your camera. Mm-hmm. The, the parts are meticulously machined. Um, the anodizing colors are gorgeous. They're, and they're built to, you know, like these things, you know, they support like 6,000 pounds. So <laughs> it's way stronger than it used to be. Right. Um, and, and then we have a couple different versions, uh, three different versions that are, um, we're just re-releasing kind of our 3.5 version of the strap. And the new version um, has uh, four different ways to mount the camera, to mount to the camera. One of them is called the universal mount, and it's really cool. It has a big thumb screw. You can just screw it right onto the bottom of the camera really quick, and you can take it off really quick. We have one that's an actual arca plate. Mm-hmm. So you stick it on the camera, you leave it on there, um, and it's uh, really beautiful. And it's it's um, milled, so it's the same spec as a really right stuff plate in terms of size and how it feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we make a Manfrotto RC2 plate. We don't make a ton of those. Just, I don't, I don't think they're quite as popular, but, um, but it's a gorgeous piece of hardware. And then one of the biggest ones, it's kind of been surprising me how well it's been selling is we sell one that uses a QD socket, which is the same thing that really right stuff puts on all of their L brackets. Hmm. So you can 
buy one of our straps and it plugs right into the side of the L bracket, either the bottom or the side. And it, it's, it's awesome. I've <laughs> got a really right stuff L bracket right here in my hands. And I'm trying That's to figure out where that would go. Well, it has to be a fairly new one, like within the last two years, I think, maybe three years. Okay. But it has a big, there's a big hole <laughs> that not a tripod screw. Uh-huh. Um, and it's called a QD socket. Huh. And really right stuff sells. They sell the, the uh, they sell a strap that's made by a rifle manufacturing or a rifle company called Magpul, hmm. which is, and it's cool, but this is, I think, next level. Nice. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a lot of fun, and it's, for anybody who gets to be involved in anything like this, I get to beta test all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> right, like that's like that's I'm, awesome. I've used I've used four different QD sockets this summer, <laughs> just trying to figure out what which one's the best one, which is the one we're going to go with. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I have a drawer literally in front of me that has probably twenty uh, raw aluminum prototypes of mounts and that's cool yeah i don't i don't remember what problem i was trying to solve back in the day but i remember i was having problems figuring out a really good safe way to mount a camera strap to like a kirk l plate i want to say it was and i was having trouble figuring out the best way to do it safely and then like make it to where it was easy to take the strap off when you have it on a tripod and i remember it was a real pain in the ass um well and that's that's ultimately what, so for me as a, I kind of hate normal camera straps because I can't, they're hard to take off. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some quick release camera straps out there, but I, they all use little fabric connectors mm-hmm. and I'm just not a fan of that. No, so, like, how do you trust that right. with like $10,000 worth of gear on your neck? Right. And it's funny because Greg, my partner, he is so like, he, 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 he's the kind of person who well, I'll show him something. He'll go like, here's a fabric connector. He's like, that's gross. <laughs> so um, it's, he's a, uh, he has pretty fun high end industrial machining tastes, <laughs> which means nothing that is too sissy looking or that, he, that isn't complete overkill is going to be used <laughs> on any of these things. Yeah. I would say the one thing to think about though, is like people that like to do lightweight, backpacking and stuff like that it's a hard it's a hard balance yeah we're working on a prototype with a friend of ours um that um has asked for basically a a strap that will clip onto his backpack in two spots oh yeah that's what i would love that yeah so we're working on that right now it's there's another company that makes something similar but it's not i've used it and it's not quite what we're looking for so is it like the peak design or spider Nah, it's it's um i think it's a it's an old product that that uh, is black rapid makes but they don't sell it uh gotcha yeah like no i i um one thing i would love is uh i would love a way to connect my camera easily to i have a shimoda designs bag yeah me too and um i would love to be able to just easily attach it to the you know the the straps your shoulder straps Right. And and then like when you're hiking, you just you know unclip it and take right. a shot. Well, and Shimoda has those really cool round little rings. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So we've been working on something. It's uh, you're not the first person <laughs> to mention it. Ah, uh, cool. Uh, but, but it's also one of those things where actually producing and having stuff to be to have it be out there and ready to sell 
um, producing and making them is a different thing from creating them. And yeah, so no, I believe that. it's always kind of like, we're always trying to balance. How do we keep making the cool new thing um, and still make a product that, you know, people want and, and people will use. Right. I mean, I it's mean, like, there's all, like, there's probably like 10 other people in the world that would use the stuff I would want. <laughs> right. right. Well, and it's, it's, I get, we get that all the time. People are like, Hey man, can you make it do this? I'm like, well, like, yeah, we can, but like, you're literally <laughs> the only person that would use it. Right. Or that people like, can you make it purple? Like, right. well, it costs money to do an anodizing run and we're not going to do it for one part. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we actually, and it's funny because we do one run of uh, parts with red, you know, with red, with red parts once a year right. around the holidays. Right. And inevitably somebody in the middle of you know February is like, Hey man, I have to have that part. It has to be red. Like, dude, we will sell those at Christmas time. Right. <laughs> like, Right. Or you could buy some spray paint. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Although once you see this anodizing, you don't, you, you go, well, that's a different thing. Oh yeah. No, I, I know what you're talking about. Our, our newest, the newest stuff we, we were putting out right now has a very distinctive uh, gunmetal gray color that looks an awful lot like uh, a lot of our phones. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. It has a very specific, uh, cool gray color. Uh-huh. So, cool, man. Yeah. yeah well, so that's it's, awesome. It's, it's a fun company and um, it's fun. He's a really great partner uh, to work with. So we're, yeah, we're getting ready to, we're relaunching that stuff. They should be probably launched. I'm guessing before this episode goes live. Cool. So um, it's pretty easy to find. It's luma dot or luma dash labs.com. Okay, cool. That's yeah. what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. So kind of winding down, who, who would you like to hear on the podcast? Who are some people that, you know, you haven't been on the podcast that you think people would be interested in hearing from. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, I got three. Okay. Uh, I thought about this and these are all folks that are really fascinating to me. Um, both as nature photographers and as people who just seem to really be getting it done from a business perspective as well. And the first person is a guy named Hudson Henry. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Hudson is a friend. Um, we had been internet friends for a long time and we connected here in this last year. Actually, a, a, a friend of mine introduced me to him. Uh, it, it, we had lunch and it was great. And I just find his work and, and his approach to how he, how he manages um, every aspect is kind of mind blowing to me. Uh, he does some crazy stuff with, um, pano with, with doing, doing just ridiculous panos. Mm-hmm. And he's got the, he's got these crazy setup with like figuring out where the nodal point is and having these crazy sliders. Oh yeah. But his work is just so good. And I've seen a couple of his pieces in person, you know, like, you know, eight feet long and it, man, it holds up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, I think it's because of his process, but I, have watched the way he works with, he does workshops. He does, he works with, uh, with companies doing com- from the commercial side of things. Um, he's selling fine art prints, um, especially installations. And it's really cool. So um, Hudson Henry, great guy. Um, and he's also happens to be a, one of our testers and oh, cool. one of our folks that we work with at Limit Labs. 
So Hudson's a good guy. Another one is a guy named Steve Yoakum. And uh, I met Steve through the Sony Images group on Facebook and have gotten to know him over the last couple of years. Steve's out of North Carolina, and he does a ton of work um, with travel bureaus. So he, he's done like every single magazine for travel traveling in North Carolina. He's had the cover or done featured stories there. That's sweet. Yeah, really fascinating. He is a fairly young guy. And he just, he's in the process right now. He's traveling all around the West. I think he's up maybe in Colorado. I, I think he may have come out to Washington as well. Just doing some crazy uh, road trip backpack. He has his dogs with him and is just creates some really beautiful work. And then back at home, he's actually converting a school bus into a camper. <laughs> nice. And he's been documenting all of it on his Facebook page. And I, I, um, I have three kids and, Dude, wife, and so I'm not going <laughs> to be living in a converted school bus. It sounds fun though, right? Yeah, I'm living vicariously watching it. <laughs> I was watching him install his wood stove and I was like, Dude, that's <laughs> sick. That's next level. Exactly. Exactly. You he's, have a wood stove a in your car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's kind of, this next level. It's, it's, it's it's really cool. So he's a great guy, um, and we've he, we've had a few conversations just about business as well. Um, and I feel like he he's somebody that I look up to. I, I feel like the way he's doing it makes a lot of sense. He's creating really beautiful art. He's got a really good business sense, and that's really cool. Yeah. And then I got one third one because I've got this friend uh, Alexa Hope, and Alexa is pretty big on Instagram. And I met her on a, on a workshop that I co-led last year. Um, and she does these crazy seascapes um, that she has a really, a really interesting sense of color. And I've shot with her a couple times and I'm, I'm, I have my camera out next to her. And, but when I see what she puts, what she puts out, it kind of blows my mind. Uh, she, she has these just beautiful, beautiful pastel, warm, uh, these kind of warm pastel colors, these moody sort of ethereal images, but everything is just beautifully tack sharp mm -hmm. as well. And she also made, she just switched to Olympus recently from Sony, which is a little bit of a fascinating thing to watch as well. Um, but she's, she's really cool and uh, I'm happy to, introduce you to any one of them oh man that's awesome well thanks so much for the tips and the candid conversation on business and all of that fun oh, stuff is yeah. it was it was a lot of fun man it's a blast being on here i really appreciate it and just keep doing what you're doing with the podcast it's uh it's inspiring it, it, uh, almost every time i'm like man i gotta go shoot more <laughs> cool yeah uh, most of the time I'm like, Oh, I don't need to shoot now. Cause I just live <laughs> vicariously through other people. So that may have happened a few times as well. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks to Dan for joining us on the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation and Dan's perspective on the business side of photography. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review over on iTunes. It's the second best way to support the podcast. The first, of course, is to support us financially on Patreon, which thank you for those of you that are doing that. 
And as we've previously mentioned, uh, we have finally reached one of our main goals for the podcast. I promised almost two years ago that when we reached the $1,000 a month mark over on Patreon, that I would develop a Landscape Photography Conservation Award. We've developed the criteria for that award, and we are actively seeking nominations. You can learn more about that in the liner notes or on my blog at mattpainphotography.com. We've received a lot of donations and sponsorships from listeners and brands that are aligned with our message of responsible landscape photography, and we're looking to grow those uh, donations and sponsorships, so please reach out. So far, the award is over $1,500, and we have some amazing bonus prizes given to us by some incredible brands, including Shimoda Designs. Uh, If you've not seen a Shimoda backpack, you're missing out. They are really, really well-made. Ian actually used to be the lead designer over at F-Stop Gear, and the Shimoda bags are fantastic. They sent me the next generation of their 60-liter backpack, and as we're speaking, I'm probably wearing it in the field, uh, testing it out, and making sure it's amazing, which I kind of promise it is. It's got so many bells and whistles, I don't even know. So anyway, uh, Shimoda uh, is donating to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award, a camera bag of their choice, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case, which is worth $779. Next up, we have Reed Art and Imaging. They're a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado. They do really incredible work and are they are my print lab of choice for all of my high-end acrylic prints. And speaking of acrylic prints, Reed is donating to the winner a $500 credit towards the purchase of one of their acrylic prints, and they call them Diasec prints. They're really fantastic. All right, next up is Tamron. They're the camera lens manufacturer, and they're donating a 45mm f1.8 lens, which is a $599 value. Uh, Viewbug.com is a popular photo sharing and contest website, and they're donating a Pro Plus membership to the winner of the award, which is $179 value. And lastly, QT Luang is donating a limited edition copy of his award-winning photo book, Treasured Lands. Treasured Lands is a book all about the 61 United States National Parks with location and photography notes for each photograph. It's fantastic work. you got to check it out. This limited edition version is valued at $245. And of course, we have to mention the incredible people that are supporting the podcast over on Patreon. And there's a special group of people we like to call our Patreon podcast producers. Uh, We do Google Hangouts, and they share their opinions and help guide the direction of the show. And they're just really awesome people. So thank you to Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, David Kingham, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Ken Dono, Danny LeFrancois, James Bacavoy, Matthias at Photomagica, Richard Wong, Zachary Smith, Gary Randall, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, and Suzanne Mathia. All right. Well, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. So I believe next up is Aaron Nace. He is the founder of the photo education website, Flurn. We had a fantastic conversation. We have uh, Brenda Petrella coming up. She's a photographer uh, from the state of Vermont. We have Michael Fry. He's known for his amazing uh, California, Sierra Nevada and Yosemite photos. We have Mahesh Thapa uh, coming on the show. We have Dylan Fox 
And we have Carl Vandenboom. He is the uh, founder and creator of uh, Valere Photography Gloves. And we're going to talk all about that. And I'm also really excited for an episode that's coming in January with uh, Suzanne Mathia, uh, Alex Noriega, Alex Nail, Guy Tal, Sean Bagshaw, David Cobb, and Len Metcalf. We're going to be talking all about photography education modalities, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that episode with you guys. All right. Well, thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.